Hello and welcome to The Rest is Entertainment with me, Marina Hyde. And me, Richard Osman. Twice a week this week. We are twice a week. We are formally beginning our questions sessions. Questions and answers. And answers, yeah. It won't just be us reading out your questions. Originally, then... I just thought, let's do questions. Uh, but do you know what? I listened to the producers. Yeah, they're right. Let's do answers as well. I would say, do you want to begin? But I'm afraid I must begin with a little bit of housekeeping. Okay. On our Boxing Day episode where we began answering questions... I suggested that the first appearance of Boba Fett in the Star Wars holiday special, ill-fated and almost never seen again, made it canon. Thomas Aguirre-Fraga writes in to say, Hello, I regret to reinforce stereotypes about Star Wars fans, particularly one on the male spectrum such as myself, but I feel the urge to write in to say that, very technically, the Star Wars holiday special was not the first appearance of Boba Fett. It is indeed the first on-screen appearance of Boba Fett, as the first broadcast of the Star Wars holiday special was November 17th, 1978. However... On September the 24th, 1978, in the San Anselmo County Fair Day Parade, Boba Fett made his first public appearance. So I suppose Star Wars fans and pedants such as myself need truly to be considering Bay Area parades as canon. That is lovely. Thank you, Thomas. Wow. I stand correct. We all stand correct. And that's all we've got time for today. <laughs> the lovely. Uh, that's, do you know what? I'm not sure Thomas does regret reinforcing the stereotypes. I think he's happy to. None of us ever regrets reinforcing but also, the stereotypes. But also, if being in that parade, sorry to take this more seriously than, it's, uh, than maybe we should, but if being in that parade is canon, if that's the first appearance, then actually the person who made the costume like the first, like the first person to see Boba Fett was the first person like drew the costume. Yeah, I and mean, so, it's, and so that's it. I mean, where where do we go? Back where do to? we go back to? Where do, where we? Yeah, where do we go back to? I think that's a question, but we don't necessarily want everyone to send in their answers to it. <laughs> Imagine if that's what this show was every week. It's just it's all but it's all Boba Fett all the time. <laughs> Shall, shall we? Shall we try and move on to other areas? Let us. Or should we do another twenty minutes Let on us. Boba Fett? Right. Should we do our first question? Yes. Sarah Cannon says, what are your opinions on spoilers? Does it ruin your enjoyment of something if it gets leaked? Yeah. It does, but I think there is a limit. I think someone actually wrote in and said, I had no idea you shouldn't have mentioned a certain event in succession because um, I'm just starting watching it now. And I thought, well, I mean, the clue is in the title a bit. And it was on the front of every (laughs) single newspaper and all over social media for some weeks. It sort of had full cultural dominance. So in some cases, I think you have to be allowed to talk about a thing that has happened in a television show. There has to be a statute of limitations. I once got in trouble on Pointless for giving away the plot of Great Expectations. No. And it feels to me like that probably is we should be allowed to talk about. There, yes. There, there must come a it's point. It's not clear when the limit is. I think you just, it's a bit like pornography. You know it when you see it. It's its the old, uh, certainly as a writer, if I know what's happened or can work out what's happened, as I'm watching the thing on screen, I'm always thinking, how are they going to get there? How are they going to do it? Oh, I see. Yes, it does. I mean, its it, it sort of takes away, doesn't it? But I do think there is a limit to how in a kind of, culture with social media and just any form of media where you can't keep every single thing secret and actually you know that's why linear isn't dead in lots of ways people watch those new episodes of the very very big shows they try and watch them that night the next night and and they stay away from social media in between well that's the thing i i think listen i'm I, i don't like spoilers but i don't like people who who will go on twitter and then say, I can't believe you gave away the end of that. You think, yeah. I mean, honestly, if you, if you really, really want to watch the end of, you know, whether, whether it's a, Traitors or whether it's The Apprentice, whether it's Succession, and you're going to watch it tomorrow, 
do not go on Twitter tonight. That is a, that's really really on you. I think. I yes. think. I think you have to. It's like there's the famous episode of um, Likely Lads where um, yeah. uh, the, the the boys trying to you know avoid the football result. Yeah. They do everything that they can do to avoid the football result so they can watch it on Match of the Day. Uh, do you know what? It's got an interesting ending that show, but I won't give yes. away what that ending is in case I people people want ending, to watch we'll it also not. Uh, and that's and that's from the 70s so you know perhaps i am more sensitive to spoilers but i think sarah goes on to say she likes spoilers that she goes she, she, she literally says, reads up she on said what that happens as an anxiety reducing yeah. tool she goes and reads ahead to find out what happens but she is aware that that's unusual i i really really get that though i find it very hard to watch television programs that are anxiety inducing i want to fast forward through to the bit where it's okay if it, but you know, if if like if someone is wrongly accused of something, I can't, I cannot watch until it's been sorted out. No, I find yeah, I I can't, I find it unbearable. And look at in in my books, if there's moments of jeopardy, I sort them out pretty quickly because I like moments of jeopardy. But I'm I'm not gonna let something kind of just bubble for chapters and chapters and chapters because I f- I find it too upsetting. You know, and it's interesting. Lots That's of new dramas note. and lots of comedies now, where actually they dial down the jeopardy quite a lot. Uh, or if there is jeopardy, it's solved quite quickly. And I think that's that's becoming a cultural thing because I think a lot of people find it very awkward to watch things that are tense. Uh, and so I'm 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 with Sarah on Gosh, how interesting. that. Yeah, but other than I, I haven't wouldn't... been aware of that. But okay, I'm going to be looking out for it now. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't look I wouldn't go to the very end. Like you you don't want to find out who's won certain things. No, do you? Or you know, one of the great joys is to be able to watch match of the day not knowing any of the results, yeah. which these days is almost impossible. And also, I would never do because I I need to know if Fulham have lost, which invariably <laughs> they have. Very good question, though. Right. But I do think if you are deliberately spoiling things for people, that's a that's a very very bad. That look. is certainly a character um, note. But uh, yeah, great expectations. I will not tell you what happens. <laughs> okay, Nick Harnett writes: What does the job of showrunner entail, and how is someone like Taylor Sheridan? Taylor Sheridan is the showrunner of Yellowstone, America's most popular show. Taylor's production company, 1901, by my calculation, made five to six Paramount shows last year, all massive productions. How is he able to sustain multiple productions at once? Well, the job of showrunner, which we'll begin with, this is a sort of, it's more of a US role and we'll come to differences in the UK in a minute, but a showrunner is the creative authority on the show, the ultimate creative authority. Most likely they had the original idea and developed it. They may have developed it from source material, e.g. now Warners are looking for a um, showrunner for the Harry Potter series, which they're going to turn into one whole TV series per book. That's a good idea. Where yeah, do they get their yeah. ideas from? Well, I mean, well, in a way, they think their property is laying dormant for too long. So, uh, anyhow, um, but the showrunner—it's a huge job. Um, you are liaising, apart from overseeing all the writing and doing a lot of writing yourself. You're running the writers' room. You are dealing with the heads of departments. Every every creative decision on that show comes through you. Taylor Sheridan is a specific case. He writes, he lives on a ranch, so I think he's quite, quite, yeah, he, and he writes a huge amount of Yellowstone. I think he's written something like 60 episodes of it, which is more than a lot of people will write of of television in their entire careers. And as you say, a show that we don't really know over here, but it's the biggest show in America. It's the biggest show. The the Kevin Costner one, right? I I think it's on five now. Yes, I think it is now. Yeah. I think they have bought it. What I will say is that a lot of people you see get that many credits. The writer's room has broken the story. Writers have gone away and written first, second, multiple drafts. And then the showrunner might rewrite that and essentially take the credits. 
you can imagine what a lot of writers feel about this particular thing. But it's uh, and it's not something I've experienced. But a lot of people do that. That does sometimes happen. So people can. They, it's really hard to be across everything. There's only so much of one person. So. He he's not he's hasn't got a sort of time turner like what's her name in Harry Potter so he's he he can't so he can't do it to the extent that someone like Jesse Armstrong would do on Succession. Yeah, it's a weird combination of writer and producer, yeah. isn't it? Showrunner essentially. So in, in the UK that would be writer and producer combined. In the UK you always see executive producer, which always hides a multitude of sins. Yeah, yes. Uh, you know it can be, literally be the person who's working hardest to someone who works in the office. At the production company, there's an awful lot of uh, there's an awful lot hidden behind exec producers. And but in yeah. the US, it can mean writer because it, the WGA have been so strong on getting credits for people who are that you can be credited as the executive producer of a show on which you are effectively a writer and you you get production credits. Well, that's it. On those succession credits, all the exec producers are essentially the writers in the writer room. Yes, but they do, but the most actually, senior ones. The most seniors, but those most seniors ones will also be in charge of being in charge of a lot of stuff on location, being doing more than just someone who is more junior in the writers room is. Con- is concerned. I have a question. I like that your questions are about very, very high-end, incredibly expensive American drama, uh, and mine are about daytime quizzes. This is from uh, Dovia Udin. Are the questions on daytime daily quizzes weighted to ensure there isn't a daily payout, or are the questions selected randomly? I only ask because it seems to me it would be very expensive if the jackpot was won every day. Um, thank you, Dovia. Well, it's a very good question. And the questions wouldn't be weighted particularly in that way, but lots of formats have ways of ensuring there isn't a payout. So you'll do like a final round um, where you could win or you couldn't win the jackpot. So on Pointless, you don't win the jackpot every day. You win it every few days. Um, On something like, you always have an an algorithm. So in in your budget, daytime budgets are, are, are very small, but in your budget will be a line item for prize money. So when we used to make deal or no deal, for example, which is a very good example because it's all about money yeah. and you got that £250,000 box all the way down to the 1P box yeah. and the average amount of money we were uh, supposed to give away was £16,500 a day so that's the thing which means you can win a quarter of a million but an awful lot of other people are going to have to win £2,000 it's the truth and there's an algorithm that you put together for shows that give away a million you can be insured as well in case your algorithm breaks. But yeah, so on deal or no deal, we, we know we got 16,000 to give away, which is quite a lot, given that a lot of people do crash and burn and you yeah, know, yeah. walk away with 50 pence or walk away with 500 pound. You know, you can be having those 50,000, 70,000 wins. Uh, very, very few people, I think four or five in our run of it, go all the way and go for the 250,000 pounds. So you've got a 250,000 box. But the beauty of that format is you're going to be you're left with two hundred fifty thousand pound and fifteen pounds, and you know you're going to be offered seventy thousand. Very few people are turning that down. You yeah. know, very very few. Some <laughs> people did, and you know it's great, but very few people are turning that down. Now it's interesting on the the ITV reboot of it they just done with Stephen Mulhern, which is very good. There's no two hundred fifty thousand pound box. The highest box is one hundred thousand pound, and that is because their daily payout is probably something around 12,000. So they can't afford to have that 250,000 pound in there. It's a algorithm. In fact, an algorithm... Can the algorithm break, like you just said? Not really. Not really. That algorithm is weirdly written by uh, the banker, the guy who was a banker, Glenn Hugel, who's a a mathematical genius. Uh, And so, you know, that's his algorithm and it's worked for years and years and years and years. But we did a show called Million Pound Drop with Davina for many years, which is a really good show. Uh, 
it was the best-selling show in the world for three years running. Was it? Million pound drop the format. Yeah. Was that Endemol? But uh, yeah, mm. back back in the days where, where you could make money out of formats, you can't anymore. Um, so we were doing that show, and you're given a million pounds, and you move it across various answers and across ten questions. You gamble some of it, uh, and you walk away. If you get to the last question, you walk away with whatever money you've got left. And our average payout for that, I think, was supposed to be. 35 40,000 something like that oh. so it was prime time so it was, it was you know it was it was it was nice money because again a lot of people are leaving with nothing yeah and so you know you, you can really bump it up um literally the very first episode we did the very first episode the very first couple on the very first episode uh this couple got all the way through to question 10 and they still had half a million pound on the table which that's a problem for us because we got £40,000 an episode and we didn't like 12 episodes. So that's all of our prize money uh, gone in one. And they had like a they had like a 50-50 question with half a million pounds. So you have to put all fifty yeah. uh, or £500,000 on the, on the same thing. Uh, and they put it on the wrong trap door oh, and no. they lost all of it. Which awful for them, yeah. but absolutely saved the show. If they'd won yes. that in the first one, is there a sense also that it's downhill from there that they won't do it as apart for apart from the financial outlay? If you, yeah, you think would you have all felt that okay? It's like someone winning a millionaire on the first episode. That's the problem. Is it, someone at some point can win half a million? Yeah. But on the first episode, you're thinking, oh, hold oh, on, is he? Have we never be as good again? But no, or have, have we got this wrong? Have we? Have we? Is the algorithm worked, part? Is the you know because we. On that show, there are certain junctures at which you have a very difficult question where you're almost forced to split your money because you're asked, you know, which is the tallest building out of these four. And it's, it's very, very difficult to have a definitive right answer. And so it's designed to make you spread your money. But this couple just pl happened to play it particularly brilliantly. Now, the problem would be is if, OK, we can give away this half a million, but... What if we then give away another half a million and then another half a million? And the ashen faces amongst, and the, on, as producers, we were quite happy because it's amazing telly uh, to, if, yeah. they, if they win or they don't win. But yeah, Channel, channel 4 were like, what have we bought here? Yeah. You're going you're, you're, you're gonna to bankrupt us. But yeah, so by and large, if, if you watch lots of shows, you'll, you'll find some of them have end games where you can lose all your money. Um, you know, pointless it is, uh, we have, I think it's like £1,500 a day is our budget so there's always a thousand pound that goes up um every day and then you know extra money for pointless answers and things like that we had to re recently introduce a new round where you could add extra money to the jackpot because we were slightly under where we should have been on yeah. our um jackpot but you know people often say why why, why is uh the prize money so bad on pointless and the the answer is because it's it's your money it's paid for by the license fee yeah but yeah it all comes down to when it's commissioned by the channel you have a number in that budget, which is your prize money number. And if you go over that, you probably have to make up the shortfall yourself. If you go massively over it and it's sort of everyone's fault, then you share that burden. But uh, otherwise, that, that that's coming out the bottom line of the production company, which production companies don't like. No, I can't yeah. imagine. Okay, Paul Leonard says, what percentage of books that have the film rights purchased ever get made? This is an interesting one because a huge percentage of films and TV are based on books yes. as original material. But I am told by someone who works as an agent that about 1% of the books which are options, so that that's the ones that they've actually paid for the rights are, ever make it to screen. Yeah. It's 
absolutely right. An, an awful lot of books do get optioned because of you course, know, it's, it's, your book is great. Was <laughs> before, your book, Thursday Murder Club, was optioned before it even be, was was published. Yes, and it, you know, and bought by Steven Spielberg. And bought by Steven Spielberg, and and that's well, that's the interesting part. Is I've been around long enough to know that most books get optioned, and very few yes. books get made. Okay, and you know, there's all sorts of reasons for that. Mainly, it's very difficult to get anything made in any genre anywhere. Absolutely, but it's actually quite cheap to option a book. So if you're a production company, you know you can pay five grand for certain books and have a have have a year long have them on the shelf, option, yeah. and then you know you can then extend the option another year if you've made progress and you, and keep them on the shelf. Yeah, absolutely right. So when I was selling the rights to the Thursday Murder Club, as you say, before it came out, and Amblin, which is Spielberg's company, came in and said they'd like to buy it. What I'm thinking then is this: this book is never going to get made into a film because I know that the numbers suggest that. However big a book might become, or, but you know, most things don't get made into a film. So I think this is not going to get made into a film. However, I'm just about to go out and promote this book. And the fact that Steven Spielberg has bought the rights is a, is a, is a really, nice really thing good to thing. to have in your back to, pocket. But it is. It's, it, I mean, just, it's, yeah. it's kudos and you know, yeah, he knows storytelling. Uh, and so for me, selling it to Amblin was literally, this is going to be helpful for me in selling this book in lots of different territories and all sorts of things. But I didn't think for a second it would ever get made. It turns out it is going to get made this year, which is very, very exciting. It's been quite a while. The continuing hard luck story of this <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Goodness me. Yeah, goodness me. It's a little book that could, isn't uh, yeah, it? Really? I mean, yeah. When am I going to get a break? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's getting made this year. But, yeah, most things don't. It's It's with the streamers and stuff, there's more and more books are being made and in the world I'm from crime fiction and thrillers uh, there's, there's yes. actually quite quite a good sort of uh, conversion rate so it would, it would be more than one percent I think for, for for crime and thrillers especially with the streamers I think I think now the whole industry is contracting yeah, it, it so might it, it might go, go back to that again. but yeah the truth is it's, it's it's quite cheap to buy the rights to a book it's very 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 expensive to film a book so in, in between those two numbers yeah. there's 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 an awful lot of drop-off and the way those things are structured are you'll get money for an 18-month option. They might then extend it if there's a little bit of interest, but again, it's, it'll be at the same rate. Um, but there's there's a purchase price. On the first day of principal photography, which is essentially when yes. the cameras start rolling, that's when the real money kicks in. But essentially, the production companies don't really have to spend very much at all to, to, to buy a book unless they actually start filming it, which, which, at which point they're making money anyway. Yep. Um, here is a question um, I wonder if you can answer this because I don't have the answer to this I suspect you might Ruth Cousins asked this fast forwarding through the I'm a Celeb adverts my 16 year old daughter asked how much ads in a massive show like that cost I have literally no idea so I thought I would ask you okay it is about 300 grand for a th- say a th- for a 30 second spot on I'm a Celeb and that is obviously probably the biggest real estate for advertising um, because it's such a huge show I saw that Ruth also said um, have, has the contents of ads changed now that advertisers know that at best they're viewed at half time speed this is <laughs> this is definitely something I feel a bit sad about because I feel like I grew up in a great age of TV advertising yeah. where we, you know, we all sat there and, and we, we were hostages. We couldn't, there was barely anything to switch over to because there was relatively few channels. The good old days. Um, and so you've got those incredible, you know, I'm someone like Jonathan Glazer who is, I'm going to keep banging on about Zone of Interest, which is this incredible film coming out in, so I think it's midway through February, start of February. Um, 
But he was responsible for some of those, ga- you know, the Guinness Surfer ad, yep. the Nike Park Life ad, yep. the, um, the, do you know, the Sony Bravia where the whole paint tower exploded, the whole tower block exploded in colours and things like with paint. Did he do, we he, hope it's chips, it's chips? Yeah, he, he did not do that one. <laughs> but ideas. obviously there was a whole thing where lots of brilliant directors started in t- television commercials. I don't feel there's a scope anymore now. You sometimes see it with cinema adverts, but in general, advertising is like get the information out there as quickly as possible and often in writing on the screen because, as you say, Ruth, people are fast-forwarding through them and not watching them. And a phenomenon I noticed when my children were quite young, which was that when we even asked them what they wanted for Christmas, I would have an entire list as a child. Mm. You know, I'd like Things that I never got. I'd like the Barbie house, please. Yeah, you'll never get it, Marina. I'd like this. Everything that I'd seen on adverts on TV. My children never watched adverts. They didn't basically watch scheduled television. So they never, they didn't really know things to ask for. And as you sort of took them to a toy shop they hadn't seen things yeah. which I thought was a real shift anyway I always wanted Scalextric oh yeah oh, yes, never, so got never got it never got it never got it it's a shame isn't it yeah. but 300 grand for, for a 30 second for 30 commercial seconds. Then. that's quite long a 30 second one and yeah, you, yeah. you don't you know so you, not they're not all paying 300 grand but um, so you need to be the big very very big brands to, to do that and you know TV linear TV advertising which, which would be our big main channels you know declining hugely so every story is oh the collapse of um of linear television yeah. the collapse of it's still massive i mean it's still sort of the most effective thing you can do to launch a brand or to or, or to keep a brand up but it's yeah as you say it's not it's not what it was in 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 the days of um we hope it's chips it's chips yeah there is one thing which is bigger, which never obviously used to exist, which is sponsorships of shows. But brands sponsor shows because then they get that minute at the, the 20 seconds at the start when you're sitting down to watch and you will, you know, and, and, the, and it will go on the front, whether you're watching it catch up, whether you're watching it anything. So that that is a much bigger business than it ever was. And there's all sorts of legislation around how many adverts can be shown. I think an ITV hour, a commercial hour is 46 minutes, a half hour would be 24 minutes. Mm. So you've got six minutes of adverts or 14 minutes of adverts. Someone who's in the show that's being advertised in is not allowed to do the voiceover for example news readers are not allowed to do voiceovers things like that so all sorts yeah. of um little rules but uh, yeah that's why whenever you watch something on itvxa or your for on demand if you pay to get rid of the adverts they're all 46 minutes long yeah if that which is you know that's that's uh the rest of it is adverts um let's take a three hundred thousand pound break shall we yeah I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Marina, I have a question from Christine Knight. I think this is a great question. With the rise in true crime podcasts and documentaries for entertainment, has there ever been a story told which, in your opinion, should have been left alone out of respect? Oh, that's a, really that's good, a good one. It's it's how it turns out, which is whether or not you think it's been respect. I, I personally don't think anything should be off limits for art or creativity. Some of the true crime podcasts, I think, are just, seem to me complete voyeurism and are, are awful. Um, but that's just a question of execution. I don't think that anything should be beyond um, being tackled as a subject. One thing I would say over the past few years is that I'm very, very bored of the um, propensity for any story to become immediately too warring, almost immediately after it's happened, a crime story, two warring documentaries, then a book, and then a kind of Netflix drama. I, I, I can, by the time you get to the end, I don't know, the Elizabeth Holmes story or something like mm. that, you think, yeah, I think I'm across what happened on this one now. I think, I think I'm across the con now. Um, so I think that what will get scaled down in now there's going to be probably half as many scripted shows as there were if we've passed the era of peak TV or whatever. But the documentaries will continue because they're much cheaper to make. It just depends on the execution. Actually, the recent ITV um, drama, The Long Shadow, or last year's drama, mm-hmm. which was probably the first time that Yorkshire Ripper story had been told from the... Actually, the victims don't like the phrase the Yorkshire Ripper, so my apologies for using it, but from the point of view of the women and the point of view of the families of the victims. Um, and so that is an example of something where... Yes, I think going back to that story yet again would just have been sort of salacious and we kind of know it, but doing it from that different angle put right lots of wrongs that maybe past dramas have um, have, have wrought. And so I think that kind of, it just depends on the execution, but I don't think anything should be off limits. Yeah, there's certainly some schlocky ones that when you, you start watching in five minutes and you're like, oh, this, yeah, I, I, I suspect this is not for me. And that's difficult. It's, you can't really legislate against it. But yeah, again, there was an ITV one, The Sixth Commandment, the Timothy Spall one oh, about fantastic. the awful sort of narcissist who moved in with old people and killed them. And it was it was so beautifully done. I was talking about my wife and I listen to lots and lots of true crime podcasts. And I think one of the things you can take from it is there is an undercurrent in lots of them of very troubled narcissistic human beings who then become awful and controlling you know that seems to be a subset of uh, is that the podcasters i sometimes feel well listen no comment um but i i think it's quite useful sometimes in working out who the people are who commit crimes and i think so long as a podcast nails its colors to the mast very early which is this is about the victim. Uh, I'm talking to the victim's family and they're happy to talk to me and they understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Then I'm always very, very happy to listen to them. Um, but yeah, the cautionary tales, I suppose. But yes, occasionally you'll listen to podcasts and there's sort of a glee in people's voices or it's clear that 
the investigative reporter wants to be the star of the uh, podcast and you just think this... I like the way it's sent up in Only Murders in the Building where Tina Fey plays uh, yeah. a sort of absolutely kind of exploitative... I think she's got a sort of about six franchises of crime podcast by this point. Um, so I think, yes. But obviously at the kind of lowest level, I would say it is honestly people just turning up to crime scenes saying I'm doing a podcast and they've just got an iPhone and I just don't think that's obviously remotely acceptable. I know, you you hear from the police these days, they're saying every single time there's any sort of investigation, there's like Horrendous five podcasters. TikTokers. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Are you, uh, no I, that, that, those those people should, if it's not, if it's honestly just you doing it for TikTok, then I don't think that that is something that should be democratised down to that extent. I think whenever covering stuff like crime, you should have a whole sort of structure where you can put what you're, the content you're creating through various checks and balances and it can be questioned ethically. And I just don't think one person acting alone can do that. Thank you, Christine. Great question. OK, here's a good one. Paul O'Connor says, why do all children in American film and TV shows have to sound like adults? Usually adults with insight into the particular problems of their parents' guardians. Is it just American script writers who seem incapable of accepting that children are children? Mm. Well, it's hard, isn't it? Because you need every character in, a, in, in something to do a job for you. And you've know, got to move the story on or be insightful one way or another. And that, that thing of, uh, oh, actually, if I, if I put these um, words in the mouth of an innocent child, perhaps they'll carry extra weight it's, um... Well, I'm afraid to say that I think American children can deliver those lines. This is a very unpopular opinion, but I'm nervous of voicing, and yet here I am. I think American children wipe the floor in terms of acting with British children. I just don't really think British children can act. I just, I, I wow. really think there's something in American culture, maybe it's having, you know, kind of dominated global culture, they, they, entertainment culture for the sort of latter half of the 20th century, they, they sort of know how to say lines. They're kind of in, 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 instinctive performers. I remember seeing Millie Bobby Brown on um, Stranger Things and thinking, wow, she's, she's very good. Uh, someone said, she's British. And I thought, what? Hang on, my theory's broken. Then I looked, had a look, oh, raised completely in America. Well, there you go. British kids can't act. Did your daughter get turned down for the EastEnders audition? <laughs> uh, no, but look, I mean, look at the Harry Potter. I mean, look at the George and Harry Potter. I'm sorry, but they honestly get worse as the show, go, as, the, as the series goes on. I, I think I think British child actors have gotten an awful lot better. There's some amazing stuff. By the way, um, there's a, an amazing Harlan Coben's show, Fool Me Once, oh, which yes. is brilliant uh, on Netflix. There is a, a two-year-old kid in that who absolutely steals every single scene she's in. She is amazing. She's got no lines. Because you too, but she's absolutely brilliant. Next question is from Andy Williams. He says, based on your recent discussion, read the need for hard comedies on mm. hard comedies on TV. Is that the rationale for the continual recommissioning of the awful Mrs. Brown's boys? Is there a market out there for this program, or is there something I'm missing? Re, its export value seems to me a very little artistic or comedic merit. So I'm really interested in your views on why it may be so popular and why it survives. Oh, Andy Williams has changed since uh, you're just too good to be true, isn't he? <laughs> um, we talked about hard comedy, and hard comedy essentially just means comedy that people, like proper old-fashioned comedy that people are going to laugh mm. at, not kind of smart-assed, you know, comedy, but just kind of very mainstream comedy. Um, it's a good question, but it's, it's, gosh, people find Mrs. Brown's Boys very difficult. This is what I would say about it. There are an awful lot of comedies that, uh, you know, well, certainly used to be 10 years ago, um, released every year in Britain. Um, most of them don't exercise people and the reason they don't exercise people is because nobody watched them and they disappeared and they didn't go for another series the reason that mrs brown's boys upsets people so much is because it was wildly popular and it was wildly successful i mean i mean 
hugely successful. Yeah. And the reason it was hugely successful is because of all the shows that are a bit like Mrs. Brown's Boys, it was the best. Uh, and it was done by a cast of people who've acted together for years and who've done theatres for years. Uh, and it was done with a sort of glee that was absent from a lot of other television programmes. And it was done uh, maybe from a different perspective of humour from other television programmes. So it was something that had been massively underrepresented. There were an awful lot of very, very clever comedies coming out 10 years ago. Um, you know, the Well, not represented and... for a while. It's clearly a nostalgic thing to it all. It's, it's that old studio audience kind of comedy that you just don't see anymore exactly that and done well and i don't pe people don't want to hear that because if, yeah it if, rates well otherwise they wouldn't keep recommissioning it also if you don't like it if you don't like that humor you are none of it is going to win you over but um brenda o'carroll who is mrs brown is a brilliant performer well, brilliant it's not, writer it's not a woman it is mrs brown is not a woman what? Which again was very, very ahead of the curve. Can we stop, please? I mean, I, I'm going to need a moment to process this. Is too, this. Right. First, firstly, you're saying Mrs. Brown's voice is good, and now Mrs. Brown's <laughs> Mrs. Brown herself is a I man. I noticed you didn't. Yes, yes. Carry on. Um, so I think it's a brilliantly put together bit of television, and if you don't like it, you are going to absolutely hate it because it has the courage of its convictions. It does what it does to the absolute nth degree, and it is greatly loved by viewers. Which is there's nothing more infuriating. If I can just break another little bit of news since yeah. we're in the exclusives game, there is other TV. I mean, exactly. it's, it's fine not to watch it. Exactly that. Yeah. I but, mean, I yes. personally don't watch it, but there's plenty of other things for me. Marina, you shock me. But if this is the sort of thing you don't like, then it is infuriating mm. that it is so popular. You know when you watch a show that everybody seems to love and you're like, I'm sorry? Yeah. I don't get what this is at all. And it, it's, it's, it really, really is enraging sometimes where you go, how are people missing the fact that this isn't good? And the truth is, maybe it is good. It's just there's something about one's own sensibility that means you don't yeah. like it. It's like when you look at the replies to a tweet and you go, hold on, everyone's an idiot? <laughs> I really want to know the answer to this. Lily Williamson writes, I'm an avid watcher of cooking shows and competitions, but I'm always flummoxed as to how the food looks so fresh or warm for the judges or critics to try when they obviously can't eat or film everything at once. Can you explain the process of the judging sections, please, if you have any insights? I would love to know this. Oh, yeah, well, my only insight from, the, from the, the, the few cooking shows I've been around is, yeah, the food is cold. You, give it, a, you give it a bit of a spray. To make it look a bit glossy and well, it's it well like lit. The food stylists, yeah, are, yeah, uh, yeah. They they what with a little bit of oil to yeah. But yeah, they're essentially eating cold food, which on Bake Off is fine. Yeah, that's why Bake Off is the truest. Yes. of all those formats. But also, they, the judges know they can they can judge semi lukewarm food, can't they? Yes, I guess. I, yeah. It's, mm. Mm. Let's 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 uh, pitch a show to the BBC called um, "Can You Judge Semi Lukewarm Food." <laughs> Have you seen that? Have you, is it cake on Netflix? Yeah, I love yeah. is it cake. Mm. Yeah, yes. And again, no no problems there. That was a lot of fun. That was brilliant. The questions are so good. There are so many of them. But really, we really will get through questions. as many as we can. Exactly. But do please send others if you wish. The rest is entertainment at gmail dot com, and uh, we'll be doing the same next week. So we'll be back on Tuesday with a regular episode. Yes, and then, and then on Thursday. Thursday with more questions. Ah, oh, see you next week, everyone. Bye bye. 